This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me once again. It is with great pleasure that I introduce my guest today, George R. Deacon Sr. He is the former legal skills professor emeritus at the University of Florida. He was also an assistant state attorney in Florida's Third Judicial Circuit. Among other accomplishments, he served as the lead prosecuting attorney in the Orlando murder trial of serial killer Ted Bundy. He's also a prolific author, having written many books, including The Murder Trials of Abraham Lincoln and The Case Against Christ, a critique of the prosecution of Jesus and The Last Murder, The Investigation, Prosecution, and execution of Ted Bundy. But he is here with me now to talk about his latest book called Six Capsules, The Gilded Age Murder of Helen Potts. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, I appreciate you having me. So correct me if I'm wrong, but this case was kind of an obscure one before you decided to tackle it, wouldn't you say? Very sensational for its time, but lost in history to an extent. Yeah, that, uh, that, that's true. The, the case was nationwide, uh, was nationwide notorious at the time that it occurred, and uh, it was uh, a, a case that, that kind of launched the careers of two very famous prosecutors in uh, in New York City. But nowadays, nobody remembers it. Uh, and I, I feel like it, uh, it's a pretty significant case and a very interesting case, and people ought to, uh, ought to know about it. What 
was it about this particular book that struck an interest for you, that, that you decided to make it the subject of an entire book? Well, uh, I first learned about this, this case when I was in law school. I read uh, a book called The Art of Cross-Examination by Francis Wellman, uh, who was prosecutor in the case. And Wellman uh, talked about a cross-examination that he did in the, uh, in the Harris case that was quite sensational by the, by the way he described it. And so I've always, you know, uh, been interested in Francis Wellman and his cases. And when I got through my last project, which was the murder trials of Abraham Lincoln, I was looking around for something else to write, and I said, well, why don't I tackle this case that uh, Francis Wellman prosecuted? I found the transcript of the trial, and uh, I, I read that, and it was a... Uh, an extremely interesting case to me. So that's that's how that that's how it uh, that's how the project got started. So let's start by talking about the main figures in the story: Carlisle Harris and Helen Potts. What kind of, of families did they come from? Well, Harris came from a good family. Uh, his uh, grandfather was a uh, very distinguished and very uh, well respected surgeon in New York City and had actually, I didn't put this in the book, but he, he had actually uh, been a distinguished m- member of the Union Army during uh, the uh, Civil War, uh, where he served, of course, as a surgeon. His daughter married not very well and uh, wound up having to support the family by writing uh, as an author, uh, she became a, 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 a temperance crusader, and she had a number of uh, children, and her biggest disappointment was Carlisle Harris. And I probably said too much about about the, the background of Harris already, so I'll stop and let you ask me another question. No, that's great. The more information you can provide, the better. So Helen Potts. She did not come from as distinguished a family as as Carlisle Harris did. No, she did not come from the the distinguished family that that Harris came from, but she came from a very well-to-do family. Her father was a railroad executive and a mine owner, and uh, uh, they lived quite comfortably. And Helen was, uh, I guess you'd say she was the daughter of wealth and privilege, and she led a uh, led a very sheltered life, and uh, they lived at the time that Harris met uh, Helen uh, in a uh, religious retreat called uh, Ocean Grove, which is in uh, which is in New Jersey, uh, close to uh, another another city or another town called Asbury Park, which was kind of a more secular resort. How old were they when they met, and what was the year? Um, early twenties. They met in in eighteen eighty nine, I believe it was, and uh, had a uh, a kind of a uh, Victorian courtship for a while before Harris talked her into secretly marrying him, uh, and that's when uh, things started started to go south for both Harris and Helen. Uh, he impregnated her. A number of times, and uh, he was a medical student, uh, a distinguished medical student, 
at a uh, in a New York um, university, and uh, so he uh, performed at least two abortions on her. And uh, the uh, third time that she got pregnant, uh, she kind of uh, uh, reneged, said, "You know, we need. I, I'm not going to agree to another abortion unless you tell somebody that we're married." And uh, Harris very reluctantly told one of Helen's friends that uh, that he had, in fact, married her. And Helen agreed to the abortion, and uh, Harris botched it. Uh, he, he managed to kill the baby, but left the fetus inside of her. And uh, she uh, began to sicken and uh, was sent by her mother to stay with her uncle, who happened to be a doctor, and her uncle, uh, you know, tried to minister to her and uh, tried to uh, take care of her in her sickness, and he figured out what the problem was and then called Harris or wrote wrote to Harris a very demanding letter about what are you going to do about what you about the mess you've made. And this was Dr. Treverton, right? Yes, that was Dr. Treverton. So Harris went went to uh, Pennsylvania to uh, visit with Dr. Treverton and discuss the matter with him uh, about the time that Helen went into labor and uh, Dr. Treverton delivered the stillborn child. So uh, uh, Harris was very cavalier about the uh, about the whole situation, very uh, unsympathetic towards Helen and uh, wound up leaving Pennsylvania to go cavort at uh, Canandaigua, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, Canandaigua, New York, with another woman while Helen recovered from the uh, delivery of her stillborn child. Why the secrecy? Why wouldn't he tell anyone that they were married? Helen was not the only person he'd ever married. Uh, he talked at least one other woman into secretly marrying him. And uh, it's quite uh, quite possible that uh, that marriage was never dissolved. They never really were able to figure out uh, whether it was or not. And uh, again, his grandfather was supporting him in medical school, and he would have disowned him and disinherited him uh, if he found out about the situation, uh, which he eventually did when Harris got arrested from her. Was that the same reason that his young wife had the abortions? I, I would assume that that was not her decision at all. And not her decision at all. It was a different world. She wanted to save herself for marriage. The only way that Harris could get what he wanted from her was to talk her into marrying him secretly. And then the only way that he that he could cover it up was with that was was with abortions. What was it like in the 1890s for young women who who sought an abortion? There was a, a giant stigma attached to it, of course. Well, it, um, such a giant stigma that you could go to prison for it. Uh, it was it was against the law. It was a felony. Uh, so each time that he performed an abortion on uh, on Helen, and he'd performed abortions on other women, he got pregnant. Uh, he was committing a felony, and 
any woman who had a baby out of wedlock in uh, Gilded Age New York was damaged goods. Uh, any woman who had uh, uh, who was suspected of uh, of having an abortion would have been damaged goods. Uh, at least two women whom uh, Harris impregnated were reduced to uh, uh, penury. One of the one of the women, uh, when she had the baby, she was reduced to walking the street with a baby in her arms. And the first night that uh, that she was on the street, she spent the night at the jail in order to uh, have a place to stay. And uh, she went to Harris and asked him, please help me. And he told her, well, well, just put the brat on somebody's doorstep, and uh, that'll solve the problem. But uh, Harris eventually arranged to have the baby placed in a uh, children's hospital where the baby died. So why even bother with marriage if it was going to be a secret anyway? Well, that's the only way he'd get her to agree to have sex with him. Uh, Harris bragged incessantly about his uh, sexual conquests, and he would tell people, you know, just exactly how to go about coercing a woman into having sex. His uh, next-to-the-last method uh, before secret marriage was to get the woman drunk, uh, so drunk that she passed out and then have sex with her. But, you know, if they if didn't get the woman to uh, get that drunk or, or to drink, then, okay, let's talk her into getting married. When did the, the families learn about their marriage? Well, Dr. Treverton was the brother of Helen's mother, and he notified Helen's mother, and Mrs. Potts went on a campaign to, uh, from that point forward, you've got to make my my daughter honorable. You've got to do the right thing. You've got to have a public marriage. Harris eventually got to the point where he said, uh, well, I'll, uh, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll marry her if we can't figure out any other way. And uh, he figured out another way, and, and the other way was to poison Helen. So how did he go about doing that? Uh, when he was uh, in medical school, there was one class that he took along about the time that Ms. Potts was trying to talk him into uh, having a public marriage with uh, Helen, and this class was on poisons. And one day the professor passed around a huge jar of morphine for the uh, students to you know examine and handle and smell of and whatnot. And uh, at that point, he probably, don't really know where he got the, got the morphine from, but he probably got uh, got the morphine at that class. And then he, uh, uh, Helen had chronic headaches, and Harris said, well, I've got the thing for you. He went, went to a druggist and gave the druggist a prescription for a, uh, a a capsule that contained mostly quinine and just a little bit of heroin, and uh, the druggist made up six capsules. That's what the uh, where the title comes from. And uh, Harris took one of those capsules, emptied it, and put 100% morphine in one capsule. 
And, and he took two good capsules and he held them back just in case uh, something happened. And uh, he went to Helen and, and said, okay, I'm going on a, I'm, you know, I'm between classes right now. I'm going to go away for a few days, but here you take these pills. You take them once in, once in the evening. They'll take good care of your, of your headache. Uh, make sure that nobody wakes you up after you take those pills because the pills won't work if you don't, if they wake you up. So uh, Harris goes off to uh, Old Point Comfort uh, for a few days R&R to be out of town while Helen takes these four capsules one at a time on each night. Well, Helen took the first capsule. It didn't taste good. She didn't like it. So she wrote Harris and said, I'm going to quit taking these pills. And Harris wrote her back and said, oh, no, please keep taking them. So by the time Harris got back, Helen had only taken three of the pills, and they happened to be the three good ones. So there was one, four, one the fourth pill, the one with the, with the morphine in it, was uh, still in the pill box. And the day Harris got back, he visited with Helen, uh, and uh, that night Helen took the last pill, and it killed her. Chronic headaches. One could only imagine the stress and anxiety that he that he had put her through for so long. You can pretty much figure out what was causing those headaches. Secret marriages, forced abortions, botched abortions. What what a terrible life for this young lady. Uh, she uh, really uh, uh, pitiable person. She really loved Harris, and uh, he really did not do her anywhere near right. Uh, you know, it's kind of a she loved Harris, and Harris loved himself, <laughs> and um, he was going to look out for himself, and uh, he really didn't care anything at all about about Helen. And he wasn't a doctor yet. He had no business prescribing medicine. No, uh, he. Uh, uh, he did not have the right to write prescriptions, but in in the 1890s, you didn't have to have a prescription to purchase more morphine. Uh, that that was that came later. Um, Harris was in trouble for writing prescriptions without being a doctor, but uh, he could have bought the morphine without a prescription. I wonder why Helen didn't consult with Treverton about those pills. Did Harris swear her to secrecy on that, too? Well, she trusted him. Uh, and her mother trusted him. As a matter of fact, the day that Helen uh, died, or the night that Helen died, she took that last pill out. Her mother was visiting her. She took that last pill out and showed it to her mother and said, these things taste awful. I don't think I want to take this. And her mother encouraged her, she said, oh, no. Said, Carl knows what he's doing. He's a very smart medical student. Uh, that, t- that pill will do you good. You need to go ahead and take it. So, you know, her mother unwittingly helped Harris kill her. So she ended up becoming really, really sick. And she was taken to a doctor in an attempt to figure out what was wrong. Well, uh, th- this was this was the, the the key. Helen was in a boarding school, 
a polishing school. And Harris had talked uh, Helen's mother into putting her into this finishing school so that she'd be a uh, proper lady when uh, uh, when Harris graduated from uh, medical school and they, could, and they were able to get married. And uh, so Helen's in this boarding school, and she's in a room with four other students, or excuse me, three other students. And Harris tells her, you can't be woke up. Don't let anybody wake you up. What he had hoped was that she would take the pill, die in her sleep, not exhibit any of the uh, symptoms of um, morphine poisoning, and in the next morning she'd just be dead and nobody knew why. But Helen's roommates that night, they'd gone to a... Uh, they go to a concert. They got back late, and they woke Helen up uh, with making the noise that they were making in the room, and uh, she immediately started. Uh, uh, you know, she woke up and she said, "You know, I'm in ter- terrible shape. Uh, I think I'm going to die. Uh, please don't let me go to sleep." And uh, and. Uh, some of her last words were, uh, Carl said that I could take those pills and they wouldn't do me any harm. He wouldn't do something to keep, to hurt me, would he? And uh, and that was not long before she slipped into a coma and never woke up. So they got the, the headmistress of the boarding school and uh, told told the headmistress what the problem was, that, uh, that Helen was in real distress. The headmistress sent for a doctor who lived right down the street. And uh, the, the doctor, Fowler, came, and he took one look at Helen, and he knew what the problem was, um, morphine, um, morphine poisoning or opium poisoning. You remember this is right after the Civil War, or not, not long after the Civil War. And there was a terrific opiate problem in uh, the North after the Civil War because they were giving injured soldiers morphine like it was you know, candy. And they didn't realize the addictive qualities of morphine. You know, they did know that it, didn't know that it would uh, ease pain. So there were all these soldiers coming coming home from uh, from the war who were addicted to morphine. And then from there it spread. And it was just a, a, a terrific scourge in the 1890s in the United States, uh, kind of like it, it is today. So the doctor sends for Harris right away, right? Sends for Harris. Yeah. And what do they do afterwards? That They attempt to figure out on their own, what happened? Well, they they asked Harris to to go to the uh, drugstore and make sure that the prescription is okay. And uh, Harris leaves for a while, and this is while Helen is in the process of, of dying. And Harris leaves for a while, and he comes back, never goes to the drugstore. Uh, he leaves for a while, comes back, and says, yeah, everything's fine with the... Uh, with a prescription. This is Dr. Kerr, right? Yeah, there were three doctors eventually were uh, uh, were uh, at Helen's bedside when she when she died. Dr. Fowler, 
a Dr. Boehner and a Dr. Kerr, I believe is the third doctor. So Harris was not acting like a boyfriend whose girlfriend is dying. Uh, that's what he thought he was, was, was her, her, you know, her gentleman friend. He didn't realize that they were secretly married. And, of course, that raised red flags for the doctor. So, you know, you know what kind of a fella is this? He's supposed to be a, a woman that he has affection for. And uh, he's, and all he can do is, is keep asking, I'm not going to get in trouble about this, am I? I'm not going to get in trouble about this, am I? So the doctors, after Helen died, notified the coroner's office. They they wanted a, a, an investigation, thinking that uh, it was a definitely suspicious death. And uh, uh, the coroner's office, you know, went to the scene, and coroners, being medical men, if you were lucky, uh, at one time a coroner in New York City was an ex-prize fighter, but. Uh, but that's another story. The coroner's being medical man and not law enforcement just absolutely, completely botched their inquiry into the death of Helen. Uh, they did not order an autopsy, although they were uh, almost they were convinced that uh, she had been poisoned and that it was quite likely a homicide. But Ms. Potts didn't want an autopsy because she was afraid that they would find out that Helen had had an abortion. So uh, she would not agree to an autopsy, and they wouldn't go ahead and order one. So Helen was buried, and it wasn't until much later, about a month, month and a half maybe, that uh, they actually exhumed her body and performed the autopsy. And uh, then uh, lost some... Uh, key evidence, the uh, pill bottle, or the, not the pill bottle, but the, the, the box that the capsules were in with the uh, prescription written on it and saying that it was uh, prescribed by C. Harris, or C, no, uh, C.W.H., Carlisle W. Harris, medical student, uh, lost the box. And uh, just, you know, it was just a, a comedy of errors in uh, the coroner's investigation. They didn't call in the police who knew how to investigate a homicide case. They didn't call the uh, district attorney's office, who knew something about how to handle homicide cases, too. They handled the investigation themselves and just completely uh, muddled it. Uh, what happened next was they, they held a coroner's inquest, and the, the coroner's inquest came back with a, a very weird-sounding verdict that... Uh, said that Helen died of morphine poisoning, but it, uh, I forget just exactly how it was worded, but it was very strange. Uh, but they didn't attach guilt on anybody. They just said she died of morphine poisoning, and that uh, uh, it may have been a homicide, it may, it may not have. And uh, then they sent, were supposed to uh, send the transcript of the uh, hearing the coroner's inquest to the district attorney's office, but for some strange reason, the coroner lost the transcript, and uh, the transcript never got sent to the district attorney's office. And Harris actually testified at the uh, at the coroner's inquest, and it probably be, it would be very interesting, you know, to, to know what he said. But that's that's lost. 
So when it hits, so when the case hits the uh, district attorney's office, the uh, assistant district attorney assigned to the case looks at it and said, "Man, this is a mess. He can't do anything with this," and he closes the case. So do we know what Carlisle Harris claimed happened? Her, her mo- mother claimed Helen died of heart disease, right? Right. That, that was that was Harris's suggestion. It depended on who he was talking to as to uh, what uh, Helen died from. He'd tell one person that, uh, you know, there was a coroner's horrible mistake, that uh, they got the dosages wrong. He'd tell somebody else she died of heart disease. Uh, just whoever his audience was, uh, whatever he thought uh, they would hear, uh, they would accept the best. That's what he'd say. Now, there was one person on the coroner's jury who was very certain that Harris had killed Helen, and that was the doctor, uh, Dr. Peabody, who was the person who was taught Harris the course on poisons. And uh, after the coroner's inquest, uh, he got a uh, an affidavit from Ms. Uh, Potts and an affidavit from Dr. Treverton, and he took those two affidavits to the uh, to the school, uh, the faculty of the uh, at the medical school, and got Harris expelled. And then he took the documents to the district attorney's office and tried to get him to resurrect the case. And it was then that the affidavits fell into the hands of, um, or copies of the affidavits fell into the hands of uh, of a rather disreputable news reporter by the name of uh, Dilworth Choate. And uh, Choate went directly to Harris and said, uh, what's all this about this criminal complaint against you for, for killing Helen Potts? And uh, he showed the affidavits to uh, Harris. And Harris said, well, I'll... This is all wrong. I said, I've been, I'm innocent. I'll go straighten this out right now. So he and his aunt went to the district attorney's office and demanded an audience with the district attorney. Now, remember, the case has been closed at this point. As far as the district attorney's office is concerned, it's over. The fat lady has already sung and the curtain has fallen. So uh, Harris gets his audience with uh, the uh, district attorney, uh, uh, a, a very experienced prosecutor by the name of Delancey Nickel. And uh, after Harris finished explaining to Nickel how innocent he was, uh, he got up and left, and then got up and left uh, uh, Nickel's office. And then Nickel came out and said, that man's a murderer. He said, go get that case out of the dead files and put my two best assistants on it. So that's what they did, uh, signed... Uh, Francis Wellman, uh, and uh, Charles Sims to uh, put the case together to resurrect the case and see if they could make it. What do you think prompted Harris to behave that way? Was it fear, hubris, or maybe a bit of both? A little of both, I think. You know, he's like somebody else I know that uh, thought he could talk his way out of anything and uh, wound up like somebody else I know shooting himself in the foot. Would that be Ted Bundy? That would be Ted Bundy. You know, the parallels between Carlisle Harris and Ted Bundy, to me, are, are very 
uh, are very obvious. Uh, you know, you've got a brilliant, uh, of course, Bundy wasn't brilliant, but Harris was. Uh, Bundy put on the appearance of being brilliant anyhow. Uh, charismatic, handsome, in one case, medical student, and in the other case, law student, uh, who uh, had an appetite for women and uh, thought that uh, he could manipulate any situation to uh, have it come out the way he needed it to come out. Then throughout the uh, the ensuing trial, you know, uh, some of the things that Harris did were reminiscent to me of uh, some of the things that Ted Bundy did during, the, during our prosecution of him. And then in the post-conviction, uh, Harris was behaving in a way that was very, very similar to Bundy. One big difference, of course, between them is Harris never confessed. He went, uh, he went to the electric chair proclaiming his innocence. So what were the strategies of the prosecution and defense in this case? Could you walk us through how each side proceeded? Well, it seemed to me like the, the, the theory of the prosecution was Helen died from morphine poisoning. Uh, the only person we knew who gave Helen morphine was Carlisle Harris. The morphine that was supposed to have been in the pill the car that Harris gave her, it was a lot more morphine than what should have been in the, in the in those pills. Therefore, since the pills never left any never left Harris's possession from the time that uh, that he got them from the drugstore to the time he gave them to Helen, uh, he emptied the contents of one pill and put pure morphine in it and gave the uh, gave the pills to her and then left town hoping that she'd die before he got back and. Uh, they had to prove, and uh, the big the big point was they had to prove that uh, that uh, she died from morphine poisoning, and in order to do that, they had to exhume the body and perform an autopsy. And uh, one of the defense strategies was to say, you know, an autopsy done forty five some odd days uh, after death and after the body has been embalmed is worthless. So they were checking the contents of her stomach? Uh, they were checking the contents of the morphine in her blood. And they found a very small quantity of morphine in her blood. And this is another piece of evidence that uh, that uh, Harris switched the pills. There was five times as much quinine as there was morphine in the uh, good pills, they found zero quinine in her, in her bloodstream. Wow. I didn't know they had the technology in the 1890s to test the blood for drugs. That That's really interesting. To me, it was kind of an eye-opener on this particular case how much they could do with uh, forensic science back in the 1890s. They did a did yeoman work in putting the case together, and uh, with the with their experts in uh, uh, convincing the jury that uh, that yes, she had been poisoned. I'm, I'm working on another case now that uh, uh, Wellman prosecuted, 
a similar sort of a case where the the scientific work that was done on that particular case was just to knock your socks off. I didn't uh, I didn't have any idea they could do things like uh, what they did in this other case that uh, that Wellman prosecuted as far as uh, analysis of blood. Hmm. What was morphine typically prescribed for headaches? Well, Harris went to uh, Dr. Peabody before the uh, coroner's inquest and asked him, you know, as a, as a, as a student, he didn't, he didn't know that uh, Dr. Peabody was going to be on the coroner's jury, and I don't think Dr. Peabody knew he was going to be on the coroner's jury either. So at that time, it's just, you know, here's what I did, Doc. Am I in trouble? Was, uh, was basically what he, what he said. And he told the told uh, Dr. Peabody what the uh, mixture of quinine and morphine was that he gave to uh, Helen. And um, Dr. Peabody said, "Well, you prescribed very stupidly. You prescribed very stupidly. If, however, the uh, uh, quantities uh, that you gave me were actually in the pills." There was no harm. It would not have killed her. And, uh, and that's what Dr. Peabody said before uh, before he got on the coroner's jury and heard all the evidence. So, now, morphine, I don't think, is very, uh, very good to be given, thing, given to people for headaches. So the prosecution argued that Harris's motive for murder was that he wanted to prevent the baby from being born. Would that be correct? Uh, that was one problem that they had with the prosecution is the only thing that they could offer as a motive in evidence at the time was that Mama was putting pressure on Harris to marry her, marry Helen, and Harris didn't want to get married. Therefore, he killed her, which is a pretty weak motive. The the defense and the final argument really jumped on the motive that they had, and so we well, you know if it, I think there was some argument that well, you know if, if there's another secret wife out there somewhere, uh, you know that might be a motive. And of course, there was. They'd found her. They knew her name, but she refused to go to court. And so that wasn't in evidence, and uh, the, the prosecution couldn't argue that to the uh, to the jury because the. Uh, the the other secret wife, uh, his name was Lulu Van Zandt, absolutely refused to uh, cooperate with him. Would you say that the evidence in this case was circumstantial? Uh, it was 100% circumstantial. So what convinced the jury that Harris was a murderer? Well, where else did she get the morphine? Where else did the morphine come from? She died from morphine poisoning. Harris gave her morphine. Harris was not a nice person. Now, they put into evidence two two items of evidence that uh, might have helped the jury a bit. Number one, uh, when Harris told uh, Helen's girlfriend that uh, he and Helen were secretly married, he told the girlfriend that he wished Helen was dead. And uh, when Harris was cavorting with uh, the uh, other woman up in Canandaigua, New York, while Helen was recovering from the uh, 
uh, from the delivery of a stillborn child. Uh, he told the uh, the woman, he said, we need to get you married to some rich man uh, so that we can have a lot of money. And she, she said to him, well, what good is that? said, I'll be married to him. Uh, and then Harris told her, she said, well, I got I can, I can uh, mix up a pill that'll fix him, and then you'll have his money. So uh, those two uh, th- those two items of evidence were heard by the jury, and uh, that uh, might not have supplied a, a motive for killing uh, Helen, but strongly suggested that he was perfectly willing to kill her. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, 
the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. What was Harris's demeanor in the courtroom during the trial? And, and what was his reaction to the verdict? He was, by turns, arrogant and then sometimes uh, tearful. And uh, he said, I don't really recall just exactly how he reacted when the verdict came out, but I remember him, I remember that he told the, the news media after the verdict was published that uh, that he knew when the two jurors walked in the courtroom that uh, that he had been found guilty, just by the way that they walked. Uh, what happened when the ver- when the when the verdict was uh, published was that his mother threw a hysterical fit, collapsed, uh, screaming on the floor, saying it's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie. And so that was the main emotional reaction for the, for the trial. And uh, as the jury was leaving, she recovered. She recovered herself enough to uh, to ask, as the jury was leaving, "How could you do this? How could you do this?" And one of the jurors re- replied to her, "It was hard." The courtroom was packed with spectators, right? The the courtroom was was packed with spectators every day. The uh, courtroom was always full. Uh, with crowds of people standing around outside waiting on somebody to get up and leave so that somebody else could go in. There were a lot of young women, too, that were very interested in this trial. Uh, Another parallel between Harris and Bundy. You know, we tried Bundy uh, in Orlando. There was a couple of groupies, Bundy groupies, sitting in the audience making moon eyes at him. And uh, there were young, attractive women sitting in the audience making moon eyes at Harris. Harris was a good-looking young man, right? Yes, he was, he was a very handsome young man. And, you know, you say that 21st century, by 21st century standards, he might not have been that good-looking, but standards of beauty were different then than they are now. Yeah. Same, same for Helen. Uh, by 21st century standards, she may may well be considered plain, but in that day and age, she was a looker. There is no doubt in your mind, right, that he did this? There's no doubt in his defense attorney's mind. After, uh, uh, after Harris died in the electric chair, uh, one of his lawyers wrote an article about... Uh, uh, an article for Cosmopolitan magazine about murderers I have known, and uh, he talked about that murderer, that murderer Harris. The, the evidence was there uh, to to prove that he did it. I was satisfied that the circumstantial evidence carried today, and uh, the uh, the one defense attorney uh, who wrote the article seemed to share my opinion that Harris was guilty. Did Harris's personality change as his execution date got closer? 
put up a, a front of being the gallant uh, put upon uh, victim of, uh, of a vindictive prosecutor, at the end, he started breaking down. He, you know, he, he said he was never going to attempt suicide. That he'd never, he'd never try that. But uh, in the days leading up to his execution, he did just that. He attempted suicide uh, by a very unique uh, method. He uh, chewed up a newspaper and uh, plugged the lock in his cell, and then he chewed up more newspaper, made a bunch of paper mache, and tried to obstruct his throat by swallowing. The, uh, the the chewed up paper down and uh, choking himself to death, and he uh, he almost made it before they could get the uh, lock cleared of the paper mache and uh, get in to get him stopped and get the uh, and clear his airway. Wow. So the day of the execution, as you said, he died in the electric chair. Was it a pretty routine affair? There were a good number of people watching. Right. The death chamber at Sing Sing uh, is quite different from the the death chamber at uh, Florida State Prison. It was a big room with a a big barren room with the the electric chair over against the wall, and there was no petition between the the witnesses and the the man who's going to be executed. And I think I'm remembering this correctly. Over to one side, there was a table that they were going to perform the autopsy on after the execution was over. So, you know, they brought Harris in. They set him down. He's he's right there. He's face to face, eyeball to eyeball with his with, with the witnesses. And uh, he, you know, he, he makes one more plea about how innocent he is, and they strap him down, lower the hood. And, throw the switch. If any, what was the the legal significance of this case for later generations? There was a tremendous amount of skepticism about scientific evidence that that surrounded the case. Um, And I'm going to compare this to another uh, another, uh, high-profile case. You know, the tremendous amount of skepticism that was around DNA in the O.J. Simpson case. But after the Simpson case, it came to be more uh, more uh, acceptable and more accepted. And uh, I think there's the same sort of a uh, same sort of a, uh, uh, of a phenomenon that occurred with, with just scientific evidence in, in general, in that. It took such a beating in the press and in the uh, uh, in the courtroom on this case, but this case was one one more step in the uh, staircase, so to speak, of bringing scientific evidence into uh, respectability. Another, and I think much less significant thing about the case is the spectacular cross-examinations that were conducted by Francis Wilman. I mean, he, he was tr- 
truly brilliant with his cross-examinations. And this gave him a reputation as being a master cross-examiner, just about nationwide reputation, and led to him, led in part to him writing the book about the art of cross-examination, which for decades has been a standard work for lawyers to go to to learn how to conduct cross-examination. Like I said, I read that I read that book for the first time in, uh, when I was in law school, and for about the first three or four years I practiced law, I'd reread it about once every three months. And, you know, one of the uh, showpiece cross-examinations that he uses in the book to teach people how to cross-examine is uh, his best cross-examination from the Carlisle Harris case. Can you give us the, the real gist of it? What made it so brilliant? Well, the doctor uh, who testified was, uh, and Wellman was courteous to the man. When he wrote the book, he left the doctor's name out. So he, he, uh, he was trying not to embarrass the man anymore than he already had. But uh, the doctor who testified, uh, basically, that uh, the state doctors uh, who had testified that it was morphine poisoning didn't know what they were talking about. And uh, his uh, he was a very well-respected, very eminent professor and uh, practitioner of medicine. And all of the uh, state uh, experts had... Uh, said, you know, what a what a great doctor he was. Uh, plus, he had written a book on uh, uh, death by poisoning. So he gets on the witness stand and he testifies that uh, uh, nobody knows, you know, that, that you really can't tell what killed Helen because of a particular case that just proved ever all of the state's uh, uh, experts were wrong. And he had actually written about this case in his book. And so uh, when uh, Wellman gets up on cross-examination, uh, in just a, just a few questions, he has completely destroyed the man by showing, uh, among other things, that the the case that, uh, that this doctor had relied so heavily on uh, to uh, uh, discredit the state's experts uh, this particular case, well, the facts, uh, he had the facts wrong. He didn't know what the facts were of the case. And the true facts of the case uh, that he relied on did not uh, impeach the, the state's uh, experts. And uh, Wellman actually had the jury laughing and the, uh, and the uh, audience laughing at the doctor by the end of the cross-examination. And uh, the doctor, when he when he got back to Philadelphia, he told his friends. He said, "Well, I went to I went to New York just to make a fool of myself." And you know, the the defense had put all just about put all their eggs in that one basket of that doctor with his credentials and, and the, the respect everybody had for him. So they put him on as first witness. You know, put your best foot forward, and you know, they put their best foot forward and. Uh, Wellman stomped on it for him, and the 
you know, the case was downhill from there. Wow. Before I let you go, can I ask you a question or two about Ted Bundy? Sure. As I'm sure you know, there has been a real resurgence of interest in Ted Bundy. There was a recent documentary series made about him. Yep. Yeah, they uh, interviewed me for it. Oh, interesting. What do you think about it all? Do you think Ted Bundy is worth revisiting? Well, uh, how do I say this? The only difference between Ted Bundy and your average run-of-the-mill garden variety dirtbag serial killer was Bundy was pretty and he had the gift of gab. You take those two qualities away from him and uh, and he is no different from anybody else. He's, you know, he is actually a remarkably unremarkable serial killer. Did you have personal interactions with him? Um, yes, hours and hours of personal interactions with him. What was your impression of him? Arrogant, uh, uh, self-centered, egotistical, uh, not a nice person. Superficial charm, but uh, he wear thin on you in short order. And that was my impression before I found out about all the horrible things he did uh, to his victims. I didn't find out what a real piece of trash he was until after he was executed and um, Bob Hagmeyer from the uh, FDLE uh, no, excuse me FBI Behavioral Sciences Unit uh, told me about how Bundy did the corpses of the uh, of his victims you know it's not you know if you you look at the uh, uh, well, say, oh, somebody like Mark Harmon or Zach Efron, all dressed up in a suit uh, in the courtroom, very, very handsome, very personable. Uh, just looks, uh, it looks like the boy next door. But underneath that skin, there is a murdering, child molesting necrophiliac. Now, what is glamorous about that? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. I, uh, I'd be really happy if everybody would just forget Ted Bundy. And, uh, because he does not deserve the notoriety that he still has in death. So is there a way people can find out more about you and your work? Where can we point people? Well, uh, I've got a uh, an Author's Guild webpage. It's uh, .com. Um i got a blog. It's uh, a retired prosecutor's random thoughts. And you know, there's a Wikipedia page on me, too which was uh, written 
actually, not because I had any, not because of uh, the the Bundy case, but because of the fact that I'm an inventor of chess variants. The guy contacted me and said he wanted to do a Wikipedia article on me uh, about the uh, because of my invention of chess variants. And I said, "Well, fine." Um, he said, "Give me some bio, you know, biographical information and whatnot." And I gave it to him, and then he came back and said, "You prosecuted Ted Bundy?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I did." And so uh, he wrote the article and and put it up. And you know, at the tail end of it, he talks about the talking about chess. So anyway, anyway, those those are three places you can find that, find out about me. Okay, and just so listeners aren't confused, you go by Bob informally. Right, I go by Bob. It's a, a coaching point for prospective parents. Never call your child by the child's middle name. Call them by their first name. It causes all kinds of confusion. <laughs> but... People who want to find your books should search for George Deagle. Yeah, yeah. There's a you know got an Amazon author's page also. Well, perfect. This has been great. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk about this. Well, thank you. I again have been speaking to George R. Deagle, Sr. His book is called Six Capsules, The Gilded Age Murder of Helen Potts. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.